please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. My father had a recurring nightmare throughout his life. In his dream, he would be sound asleep in bed in the room he shared with his younger brother. They grew up in a billowing old farmhouse built sometime in the late 18th century. That house was sturdy, but like most old farmhouses, particularly in the first part of the 20th century, it was prone to mice. Mice, of course, are a favorite food of snakes. So, of course, it wasn't uncommon to find a black snake in the house, particularly in the spring, as the weather warmed, mice had their litters, and snakes were waking up hungry from their winter slumber. My father must have had to remove those snakes through the years because his nightmares always focused on him waking up in bed in that old house being attacked by a black snake. He would be drenched in sweat and kicking like a mule, according to my mother. Snakes were never my father's favorite animals, as you can imagine. He was careful to put out mothballs as deterrents in our basement and barns when I was a child. However, he was also intent on never killing a black snake, as much as they may have been the stuff of his nightmares. It was something my grandmother had taught him and something he never forgot. They're incredibly territorial, he would say. They'll chase any poisonous snake away. I can remember my grandmother saying those exact words, too. Once, when I was about 10 or 12, I was working with her in the garden using a hoe to weed the tomatoes when I happened to look across the row and see a rather large black snake about six or seven feet in length. I screamed and raised the hoe, about to strike the serpent's head and kill it. My grandmother rushed over, looked at the snake, and grabbed the hoe. Don't kill it, she said. It will keep the garden safe by keeping the rodents at bay. I'm still not a huge fan of snakes, but I've come to see the truth in what my grandmother and father taught me. They can be fearsome creatures, but like every creature on this planet, they serve a purpose. We see those mixed feelings about serpents on full display in the reading from Numbers. The Hebrews have complained bitterly to Moses and to God that they're absolutely miserable. Though they've been liberated from slavery in Egypt, they're left to wander in the wilderness without the comforts of civilization they knew when they were in Egypt. God has heard their cries and provided manna, that mysterious food source that falls from the sky, but that isn't enough for the Hebrews. They're tired of it, and they're tired of Moses, so they keep complaining, driving Moses to distraction, and according to the story, God to anger. When a plague of poisonous snakes attacks the people, many are bitten and die. And they take it as evidence that God is angry with them for their grumbling. And so they plead with Moses to pray to God for relief. 
when Moses prays, God instructs him to make a carving of a snake and to place it on the top of a tall pole, which he is to set at the center of the camp. He does so, and when the people are bitten, they are to look at the bronze snake atop the pole, and they will be healed. It seems such a strange way to bring healing. That which is wounded will also make whole. There's an irony there, one that's not lost through the generations. If you look at the symbol for medical professions, you will see a winged staff entwined with two serpents. Now that imagery predates even the Exodus story going all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia, but we most readily associate it with this incident from the wilderness. Why use the image of a poisonous serpent as a symbol for healing? Perhaps it's a reminder to the Hebrews that they have lost perspective on their situation. The God who has liberated them from slavery, who is leading them through the wilderness, keeping them safe from their enemies, and providing all that they need for nourishment, is the same one who is with them even now, in the boredom and in the discouragement that they feel at yet another day in the wilderness. Looking up at that bronze serpent, lift their eyes from the circumstances in which they find themselves that seems so overwhelming. And it reminds them of the one who has led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The one who has promised to lead them out of the wilderness and into a land rich and flowing with milk and honey. Jesus' words to Nicodemus echo that lesson. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, terrified that he might be associated with this itinerant preacher who has been marked for death by the religious and political leaders. In spite of the danger, he comes because there's something about Jesus that seems different, deeper than the other itinerant preachers. Jesus has shown courage and spoken truth that no one else seemed willing to do in that day and time. In their dialogue, Jesus seems to speak in absurdities of people being born again or born from above. How can one be born a second time? When Nicodemus challenges Jesus that these things make no sense, Jesus reminds him that the ways of God often seem confusing. But there is a wisdom there that defies the logic of humanity. Then Jesus points to this story from Numbers about the serpent being lifted up on the pole to bring healing from the very bite of serpents. Just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the truly human one be lifted up to bring healing to the world. But how can lifting up one person bring wholeness to the world? It makes no sense. And yet, Jesus says there is come into the world, one that will be visible for all to see when this happens. That light is the depths of God's love and God's grace. 
the one who in Jesus Christ is willing to suffer the agony of torture and death to overcome the powers of evil and violence in this world, when they will have done their worst, they will have been defeated. The light of hope will still be shining and shining all the brighter. And in that hope is our healing. These verses, of course, reflect the writer of the Gospels' reflection on the death of Jesus. But that reflection comes on this side of Easter Sunday, when the tomb is empty and the risen Christ is alive in, through, and among the community of the church. All the powers that be of this world rooted so deeply in the evils of hatred and violence and death, they have done their worst. They have struck a mortal blow to the heart of love incarnate, but that blow has, instead of killing love, struck a fatal blow to the powers of evil. Death itself has been defeated, and that defeat is our liberation, and in that liberation is our hope and our healing. This week marks one full year since the world as we know it came to an end. All of us can probably remember where we were and what we were doing when the reality of the pandemic began to sink into our hearts and minds. It's a tale we're likely to be telling for generations yet to come. We gave up so much. Visits with family, friends, and neighbors. Instead, we settled for virtual connections via Zoom. We began to worship and meet and even learn online, something we never imagined we'd do. Those who saw little redeeming value in technology and social media came to value these tools as ways of staying connected. We forsook the power of human touch, so central to our existence, with the promise that this sacrifice would bring life to us and to those we love. And how we have ached so over this last year to recover that simple act. We have made great sacrifices. and There may yet be more sacrifices ahead of us as this pandemic is not yet over. But one thing is sure, our world has changed and it has changed forever. We can lament that, and we should. God knows there is more than enough grief to last for the rest of our lives. We have lost so many loved ones and so much time with the ones who were left. Yet we must learn from the example of the Hebrews and from the words of Jesus. This pandemic is not the will of God. It is a terrible and awful plague that has destroyed lives and livelihoods. God never intends such suffering for anyone, but God is always at work in the suffering, working to nurture healing and wholeness. God is always struggling to transform curses into blessings. Pope Francis said recently, this pandemic set before us a choice, either to continue on the road we have followed until now, or to set out on a new path. That's the challenge that we face 
in these difficult days. We can be overwhelmed by the magnitude of the suffering we have endured, or we can grieve, and we will grieve, and then raise our eyes to the horizon with hope, to the coming day, and look forward with an unshakable hope to how we might rebuild this world on a foundation that is more just, more equitable, more sustainable, and more loving. The choice is ours. God is already at work and is inviting us even now to join. Won't you join? Amen. <laughs>